Good morning, church. It is such a joy to be here with you this morning. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 24. And we'll be covering the entirety of that chapter again. The book of Acts, chapter 24, starting in verse 1, and we'll read the entire chapter. As we make our way towards the end of this book, we notice that the life of Paul has drastically changed uh, from the time that Luke first introduced us to him. We were introduced to Paul as a zealot for the Jewish cause who ruthlessly persecuted the Christian church. Then by way of miraculous and dramatic conversion, Paul becomes an apostle of Jesus Christ and a primary figure in the apostolic church. Now, throughout the book of Acts, as Luke records Paul's ministry, we see what appears to be a continual increase in reach and influence. Though Paul faces various uh, obstacles and trials of various kinds, it seems as though his ministry only continues to grow. However, when we come to these final chapters, as Paul begins to make his way to Rome via the Roman legal justice system, it seems as though this upward trend is somewhat halted. But let's keep in mind the facts. Uh, first, Paul knew by testimony of the Holy Spirit that imprisonment and afflictions awaited him, as we saw in Acts 20. Paul also knew by the revelation of Christ that he would proclaim the gospel in Rome just as he did in Jerusalem, as we read in Acts 23, 11. And secondly, Paul knew that whatever trials awaited him, the word of the Lord would come to pass and he would take the gospel to Rome. And lastly, Paul knew that whatever happened to him or to anyone else for that matter, the church of Christ and his gospel would persevere and endure. And he knew this firsthand because at one point, Paul was an adversary of Christ. And not only did Christ's church withstand the persecution of Paul, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation, transformed Paul from an enemy to an apostle. And so as what we must understand as we work our way through these final chapters in Acts is that although Paul is in chains, and his ministry is stifled, the gospel will never be chained and the power of the gospel will never be stifled. And Christ's church will not just endure, but she will be victorious. Now, as we settle into this particular chapter, we see some interesting things about how Christians should approach those in civil authority and how Christians should respond to false accusations and persecution. But more importantly, we see the centrality and the power of the gospel and how all men ought to respond to it. So with that, let us turn to our text in Acts 24, beginning in verse 1. Here is the word of the Lord. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since you, uh, through you, we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in this charge, affirming that all these things were so. 
And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it was not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before their council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that with so much uncertainty in this life, we can be certain that though heaven and earth may pass away, your word will by no means pass away. As we come to your word this morning, I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have for us. And I pray that our hearts would humbly submit to you. We ask and pray all of these things in the precious and holy name of your son, Jesus. Amen. As we jump into the text this morning, we initially see that after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders, along with a spokesman named Tertullus, in order to make their case against Paul to Governor Felix. Now, the context of this scene is given to us back in Acts chapter 23. Uh, if you recall, the Jews made an oath together to neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, their plot had been discovered and foiled by the Roman civil authorities, namely the tribune Lysias. And now, Five days later, we begin the proceedings to see if Paul is actually deserving of death or not. Now, it's, in, it's important to identify the players here. Uh, we have Ananias and the Jews. We know who they are. But who are these other two characters? Tertullus and Felix. Well, Tertullus was a spokesman or an orator, and he was enlisted by the Jews to help in making their case against Paul to the governor. Now, being a spokesman meant that Tertullus was some sort of professional speaker, uh, most likely in the context of legal proceedings, making him a type of lawyer. Now, it's interesting that the Jews brought Tertullus in to make their case because had Paul actually violated the law in a way that was worthy of death, the facts and the witnesses 
to those facts would have been sufficient to secure a conviction. However, we saw back in uh, chapter 23 that the facts were not on their side. And the truth was, was that they were looking to murder Paul. And when that didn't work, they decided to try and have Paul unjustly put to death via the Roman legal system, a tactic with which they had had some success in the past, most notably when it came to our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Jewish religious leaders hire this fancy lawyer to craft a fancy argument because uh, they knew that they did not have a case against Paul. And then we have Felix. Felix was a former slave who had been freed and ascended within the ranks of the Roman government, eventually being made the governor over Judea by Emperor Claudius. Suffice it to say, Felix was not a good man, uh, nor was he a good governor. As the Roman historian Tacitus tells us, Felix indulged in every kind of barbarity and lust. He exercised the power of a king in the spirit of a slave. In other words, Felix did not have the mind nor the discipline to exercise his power and authority in a wise and judicious manner. And instead, he first and foremost used his power and authority to satiate his lusts. Then in verse two, Tacitus, or excuse me, Tertullus begins his opening statement by saying, uh, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made in this nation in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. Now, this is some grade A flattery. Brown nosing of the highest quality. There is a slight semblance of truth in Tertullus' words as Felix was successful in violently suppressing lawlessness within the region. But other than his harsh and violent reaction to lawbreaking within Judea, historical records tell us that Felix did not in fact secure peace in the region, uh, nor did he implement reforms for the flourishing of the people. Rather, the Roman Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Felix was a cruel, violent, and immoral ruler. His tenure as governor was marked by corruption, civil unrest, and the brutal oppression of the populace within his region. At the end of the day, uh, as I mentioned, Felix was not a good man, and he certainly was not a good governor. He even went as far as to have the Jewish high priest Jonathan murdered because Jonathan dared to point out the shortcomings in his governance. So Tertullus' flattery is clearly false, but you have to keep in mind why he's doing it. He's doing it because they don't have a case, as we'll soon see. Then after all this schmoozing, we get to the three charges against Paul. The first was that he was stirring up riots, which was akin to treason or calling for an insurrection against Rome. The second was that he was a ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes, a title which was given to early Christians. And the third is that he tried to profane the temple. Now, before we go any further, if you were paying attention, you should have noticed that we did not read verse seven. If you're reading in a modern translation, uh, you should see that the main body of the text either has verse seven in brackets, or it goes straight from verse six to verse eight with a mention of verse seven in the footnotes. Now this gets us into the area of textual criticism. And let me just say on the front end that this is an area that I've studied a little bit and I've enjoyed learning about, but in which I am by no means um, an expert. Now we don't have time to take a deep dive into the issue this morning, but I would be remiss if I did not at least briefly cover it. So the first thing we need to understand is that the chapter and verse divisions are not part of the inspired text. Uh, rather, they were an editorial decision that was added later to organize the text and assist Christians as they read the text. 
Second, as more and more manuscripts are discovered and studied, we gain more and more clarity as to what the autographs, the original apostolic writings, contained. And that is the ultimate question when it comes to text criticism. The ultimate question that textual criticism, rightly applied, seeks to answer is what did the autographs contain? What did John actually write? What did Paul actually write? Or in this case, what did Luke actually write? While we may come to different conclusions about which Greek text is best, be it the uh, Nessie Island or the Texas Receptus, uh, and even questions about which translations are best, such as the KJV, the NIV, the ESV, or what have you, uh, while we may come to different conclusions on these issues, our ultimate goal should always be to understand and get back to what the apostles originally wrote. So, as I was saying, as we've gathered more and more manuscripts, uh, scholars have found that the earliest manuscripts did not contain the last part of verse 6, all of verse 7, nor the beginning of verse 8. Uh, furthermore, manuscripts that contained the shorter reading uh, without verse 7, uh, they had a much broader and widespread attestation, uh, meaning that there were less early manuscripts uh, with verse 7, and those manuscripts did not travel as far as those that contained the shorter reading. So the idea here is, is that if verse seven was original um, to Luke, the earliest manuscripts would, ref would reflect that and the shorter reading would not have spread as far because it would have been quickly caught and corrected. And so because of this, I tend to agree with the critical text over say the Texas, Re Texas Receptus and that I don't think verse seven was originally written by Luke. But this brings up an interesting observation. Um, many people, and many Christians look at textual issues like these as a way to discredit the biblical text. But we need to recognize a, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, no Christian is trying to hide anything. We're not pretending like verse seven isn't there or that it does not exist within the history of the transmission of the text. Again, if you're reading in the ESV or the NASB or some other modern translation, um, you'll see that verse seven is there either in brackets or it's in the footnotes. Um, with a, uh, a footnote indicating, quote, some manuscripts also say, and then the information is provided to you. So the translators provide the information to the reader so that the reader can come to their own conclusions. Now, obviously, the choice to place it in the main body of the text or in a footnote indicates how the translators view that verse. But at the end of the day, they give the reader all of the information so that they can come to their own conclusions. And secondly, and most importantly, we need to understand that the New Testament text is the most attested to work of antiquity by miles and miles. And even unbelieving scholars recognize this. In his debate with Dr. James White, uh, Dr. Bart Ehrman, who is one of the foremost New Testament scholars and textual critics, and who also happens to be an unbeliever and an apostate. Uh, in this debate, Bart Ehrman honestly admitted that we have more evidence for the authenticity and reliability of the New Testament text than any other work of antiquity bar none. Take, for example, one of the most popular ancient authors, the philosopher Aristotle. The oldest copies of his writings that are available for us today are 1,400 years. Yes, that's correct. 1,400 years removed from the originals. And no one questions the validity of Aristotle's writings. But when it comes to the Bible, the oldest copies that we have access to are less than 100 years removed from the time of their original writing. And not only that, but we have thousands upon thousands of manuscripts that, uh, 
that confirm an over 99% accuracy rate among them. Now, that is nothing short of remarkable. If we wanted to, for instance, if we wanted to verify Aristotle's writings, how would we do that? If we wanted to verify that um, the manuscripts that we have, which are over a millennium removed from the time of their original writing, how would we verify that the information in those manuscripts is correct? There would be no way for us to do that. But when it comes to the Bible, because Jesus promised that heaven and earth would pass away, but his word would by no means pass away, we can verify the accuracy, validity, and reliability of the New Testament text with incredible and unprecedented certainty. And all of this to say that when it comes to textual issues, like what we find here in Acts, these should in no way bring doubt to the believer, uh, nor to the honest student of history. In fact, it's not that we don't have enough information to verify the text. Uh, instead, we actually have too much information. As one theologian put it, it's like we have a 1,000 piece puzzle and we have 1,020 pieces available. In other words, what this means is that God has preserved his word and then some. So like I said, there's a whole lot more that we could say on this particular issue and about textual criticism in general, but we simply don't have the time this morning. And if I'm being honest, I really don't have the expertise to do so. But at the end of the day, whether verse seven was originally written by Luke or it was a later edition, we can thank God that he has preserved his word for us. So moving on in our text, in verse 10, we get to Paul's response to the charges against him. And I love how Paul begins his response. He says, knowing that for many years, you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Contrast Paul's opening with the brown nosing of Tertullus, right? Paul simply states, you're a judge, so I'll be happy to make my case. Paul then goes on to dismantle the first of their charges. He states that it had not been more than 12 days since he went up to worship in Jerusalem. Paul here was making clear that there simply wasn't enough time for him to do what they are accusing him of. Then he points out that they have provided no evidence. As he states, they did not find him disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd. So the timeline simply doesn't add up and they cannot provide a single witness or any physical evidence to prove Paul's guilt. Now, as to the second charge, Paul tells Felix that his worship and religious practice is in accordance with the way, which they call a sect. He admits to being part of this sect, but he makes clear that it is in no way a uh, extremist or anti-government group. Rather, this sect actually worships the God of their fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Paul makes clear that this sect was not looking to throw off the religion of their fathers and certainly was not looking to throw off the Roman government. Rather, they believed everything that the religion of their fathers taught and they sought to live accordingly. Now, not only that, but this sect actually holds to beliefs that the Jews themselves accepted, namely a belief in the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And finally, as to the third charge, Paul tells Felix that he takes pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man and that he was in the temple presenting offerings. He explains that he had come to the temple to bring alms to his nation and to present off offerings. And that when the Jews found him, he was actually purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. Paul again calls for witnesses saying that the Jews who were there in the temple that day, not the religious 
Jewish religious leaders, mind you, but those who were simply bystanders, specifically the Jews from Asia, which are mentioned in Acts 23. These Jews from Asia, they ought to come before Felix if they actually had any legal issues with his actions in the temple. The point being that since the Jews from Asia were not there to press charges, they actually don't have any charges against him. Paul then says that since there are no witnesses and no physical evidence to any crime, ask these men, the Jewish religious leaders, ask these men what they found wrong when I stood before the council. And if you recall in Acts 23, the council was split with some of the scribes declaring, we find no wrong in this man. So we clearly see that Paul had committed no crime against the Jews or the Romans. And the Jews accusing him could not convict him of any crime in their own council. In fact, the only thing these Jews could say that Paul did wrong was that he cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. In other words, this whole trial is bogus. And the only controversy Paul was a part of had nothing to do with Rome, but instead was an internal theological debate within Judaism. So here we have a pretty straightforward case and a pretty clear-cut trial. And Felix, having a fair amount of understanding about the way uh, and the Christian movement, movement, recognizes that these charges against Paul are baseless. However, he determines to wait for Lysias, the Roman tribune before issuing a verdict. Now, it doesn't appear uh, to me that Felix believed Lysias to be better suited to render a judgment or that he was more knowledgeable of the relevant facts, since our text tells us that Felix himself had an ather, uh, a rather accurate knowledge of the way. But not only that, but we have Lysias' testimony in the letter that he sent to Felix, which we read in Acts chapter 23. So it doesn't seem that there's any practical reason why Felix would defer and wait for Lysias. But at the end of the day, whatever his true intentions were, we can say that it was by the providence of God that Felix chose to defer. Because had Felix dismissed the case, uh, Paul would have been set free and likely would have been uh, murdered by the Jews. So if Paul had been let go, he would not have been able uh, to appeal to Caesar. And if he doesn't get the opportunity to appeal to Caesar, then he does not have a one-way ticket to Rome. So all in all, it was by God's sovereign providence that Felix chose to defer his judgment. We then see that although Paul was imprisoned, he was afforded some measure of liberty as his friends were able to attend to his needs. Again, we see the sovereign hand of God over Paul, not only in sustaining him while he is in prison, but also in comforting him through the ministry of his brothers and sisters in Christ. And this should be an example for us how many of our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ, how many of them are suffering? And how many of us have prioritized ministering to them? And if we are neglecting to minister to those who are in need now, what makes us think we'll step up and minister to them when they are facing persecution for their faith? If we cannot do it now when it's easy, what makes us think we'll do it when it actually might cost us? We should learn from the example of Paul's friends and make every effort to minister to those who are suffering or in need. Our text then tells us that after some days, Felix and his wife sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, this is very interesting uh, for a few reasons. 
first, Felix's wife, Drusilla, she was a Jew, and she was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, who we met back in Acts 12, as well as the, uh, the sister of Herod Agrippa II and Bernice, who we'll meet next week in Acts 25. Now, Drusilla was given in marriage to Azizus, king of Emesa in Syria. However, while Felix was governor of Judea, he saw Drusilla and he fell madly in love with her. For she did indeed exceed all other women in beauty, as Josephus so eloquently put it. So Felix, by way of his friend Simon, he persuaded Drusilla to leave her husband and to become his third wife. And he promised her that if she would marry him, he would make her a very happy woman. And Josephus tells us, quote, accordingly, she acted ill and was prevailed upon to transgress the laws of her forefathers and to marry Felix, end quote. So we have Felix, right? The debauched, violent, iniquitous governor. And we have Drusilla, his vile, wicked, opportunist wife who so quickly abandoned her marriage vows and violated the Jewish law by marrying an uncircumcised man. We have these unseemly characters calling upon Paul to inquire about the Christian faith. It doesn't appear to me, primarily based on their response, which we'll get to in a minute, um, it doesn't appear to me that they had any real interest in the things of God. But whether it was just to get the latest scoop on this feud between this sect called the Way and these Jewish religious leaders, uh, or it was a genuine interest in Paul's convictions and beliefs, uh, we cannot know for sure. What we do know is that when God orchestrated the opportunity for Paul to clearly communicate the truth of the gospel to Felix and Drusilla, Paul was ready. And again, we see another good example for us. You do not know when God will present you with the opportunity to bring the truth of the gospel to bear on a given situation. Perhaps you've been looking for an opportunity with a coworker or a family member or a neighbor. What I will say to every follower of Christ is that you must be ready when the opportunity arises. And when the opportunity does come, you must be obedient and unapologetically proclaim the gospel. How many opportunities have been missed because we were not ready with the knowledge nor the courage to boldly proclaim the truth of Christ's gospel? Let us follow Paul's example and be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us. So then Felix and Drusilla call for Paul and our text tells us that Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Certain gospel truths that were particularly applicable to his audience. Again, we could learn from Paul on this point. Most of us are not ashamed of the gospel and we have no issues with proclaiming the gospel in a general sense. However, many of us are scared to apply the gospel specifically to the people we are speaking to. Maybe it's a friend or a family member who needs to know what implications the gospel has for these specific sins in their lives. Sadly though, more often than not, we fail to apply it to that specific area. Again, Paul understands that Felix, for better or for worse, holds his fate in his hands yet he does not back down from proclaiming the gospel and applying the gospel directly to the life of Felix. And then we read that upon hearing this message, Felix was alarmed and he said, go away for the present. We see that God's truth was having its intended effect on Felix. As the sinner comes into contact with the truth that he is a sinner, 
that he has violated God's righteous and holy law, and that he will have to stand and give an account before the almighty God. The proper response is fear. The question is, where will you turn from this place of dread? Will you run to the only one who is able to save from the wrath to come? Or will you attempt to run away and hide from the truth? We need to recognize that unless one flees to Christ, they will not be saved. We covered this last year when we looked at Acts 2. Then we recognized that true repentance requires both turning from sin and turning towards Christ in faith. And so in response to the gospel and in response to the truth of God's word, unless one turns towards Christ in faith, true repentance has not taken place. We see here in our text that Felix is alarmed, but he does not repent. We see that upon being cut to the heart by Paul's message, Felix does not turn towards Christ, but rather has the messenger of Christ removed from his presence. As Paul witnessed Felix's response, I cannot help but think that he had in mind the words he wrote in 2 Corinthians 7.10. There Paul said, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We see that for Felix, the alarm that he felt was merely a worldly grief that did not lead to salvation. So after sending Paul away, Felix tells him that when he gets an opportunity, he will summon him. Our text then tells us that at the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe for his freedom. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown in their commentary mentioned that bribery in a judge was punishable by the Roman law. But the spirit of a slave was in all of Felix's acts, including his meeting with Paul as if he cared for either him or his message. So it appears that by suspending judgment until Lysias arrived, by keeping Paul in prison and by sending for him often and conversing with him, it seems that Felix was simply working an angle. And as the chapter closes, we read that after two years, Felix was replaced by Festus as the governor of Caesarea, uh, during which time Felix left Paul in prison, attempting to do the Jews a favor. Now, I think we miss the aspect of time when we read texts like these, uh, specifically because we can just continue reading and see what happened after two years. Just in thinking about my own life, uh, two years ago today, my wife and I only had two children outside the womb, and now we have four. So in just two years, right, we've doubled the number of our children. So in the grand scheme of things, right, two years is not that long, but in another sense, a lot can happen in two years, and it's a pretty significant chunk of time, especially in Paul's case, since it was two years spent in prison. Now, we don't know exactly what happened in that two years. Um, Some scholars have speculated that it was during this two-year imprisonment while Paul's ministry was temporarily paused. It was during this time that Luke focused his efforts on writing his gospel. I think that's certainly a possibility, but it's just speculation at the end of the day. What we do know from elsewhere in scripture is that during those two years, Paul continued to rejoice in his suffering. So now that we've seen the text and we understand the narrative of, of events, there are a couple of examples that I would like for us to consider from this text. The first example that we need to consider is the example of Paul. As we've already seen in our survey of the text, Paul demonstrates uh, for us how we as Christians should act and respond in various situations. 
And while we could spend plenty of time discussing these various things, I think the most important thing that Paul exemplifies for us is how we should continually trust in the Lord regardless of our circumstances. Throughout this chapter, as well as the preceding chapters, we see Paul's unwavering commitment to trust in God's plan. In the text leading up to this event, we see Paul continually reiterate his intention to follow God's plan for his life despite the troubles that awaited him. Keep in mind that Paul knew what lie ahead. He knew that he would soon face persecution, yet he did not change his mind. And as we move into this chapter, we see that his resolve does not waver. Regardless of his, of his circumstances, we see Paul continue to trust in the Lord. As he is being attacked and falsely accused by the Jews, Paul trusts in the Lord. As he is taken into protective custody by the Roman authorities, Paul trusts in the Lord. As he is dragged into court under false pretense, Paul trusts in the Lord. And as he, and as he is kept in prison, uh, Due to no fault of his own, Paul trusts in the Lord. How many of us immediately begin to doubt at the first sign of difficulty? I know in my own life, whenever I face adversity, my initial response is to stress and attempt to do things in my own strength. My default response is not to trust, but is to worry. But Paul, right? Paul here in this text had every reason to fret but he simply trusts in God's plan and provision. And as we go through this life and we face various trials, our understanding should be that God is working all things for our good and for his glory. We don't need to stress about our circumstances because they are bringing glory to God and are conforming us to the image of his son. We do see an interesting parallel between Paul's treatment uh, by the Jews and the treatment of our Lord at the hand of the Jews. Both were falsely accused by the Jewish religious leaders. Both were unjustly charged and tried in both the Jewish and Roman legal systems. Both were ultimately innocent of the charges being brought against them. Despite this, they neither responded in sin. Neither expressed frustration or anger with the ordained plan and purpose of God. Instead, in the example of Christ, we see him endure the cross for the joy that was set before him as the author of Hebrews tells us. And with Paul, we see him consider the sufferings of this present time as not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed, Romans 8, 18. We see him rejoice in his suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put to shame because God's love has been poured into his heart through the Holy Spirit who had been given to him, Romans 5, 3. Now, my point in drawing this parallel is not to in any way put Paul as somehow on par with Jesus. Instead, I want us to see that Paul demonstrates for us how we too might emulate Christ. Paul gives us an example of how we might rightly image Christ in the face of persecution. I'm reminded of Christ's words in his Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew 5.11 when he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul here in Acts 24 gives us an example of what it looks like to follow the words of Christ and rightly reflect his character. And he sets an example 
for us so that we may be imitators of him as he is of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. In the same way that Christ humbly submitted to the suffering that lay before him, we see Paul accept and rejoice in his suffering for the sake of the gospel. We also cannot lose sight of the fact that Paul was actually innocent. He had not committed any crimes against the Jews or the Romans. Unfortunately for many Christians, when the world seeks to persecute them, they are in fact guilty, right? Many Christians today are often charged with being unloving. Sadly, many Christians are unloving. Many Christians today are accused of caring more about politics than the gospel. Well, sadly, many Christians do in fact care more about politics than the gospel. Uh, Many Christians are often accused of being one way in public and being completely different behind closed doors. Again, sadly, many Christians are in fact one way in public and completely different behind closed doors. As Pastor Tim likes to say, don't look at me spiritual. My point in saying this is that when dealing with the world, we must be both wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We must always seek to have a clear conscience before both God and man as Paul did. We know that the unbelieving world is going to persecute those who bear the name of Christ and proclaim the gospel of Christ. We also know that Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. Understanding this then, why would we knowingly give ammunition for our enemy to use against us? Why would we give our enemy a foothold by cultivating sin in our own lives? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating for some sort of sinless perfectionism. I recognize that we will contend with our sin nature until we are glorified together with Christ. And I understand that we will be in the presence of sin until Christ consummates his kingdom in his bodily return. So then what does it mean to remove any opportunity for our enemy uh, to accuse us? Well, the primary way we take the ammunition away from our enemy is by quickly and regularly confessing and repenting of our sin. Knowing that our sin has been removed from us as far as the East is from the West, we should quickly and joyfully confess our sin, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. In other words, when the enemy comes to accuse us, we should almost beat him to the punch. We should joyfully say, well, of course I'm guilty. Of course I'm a sinner, but that's why I have a powerful savior who justified me through the blood of his cross. Scripture speaks about being above reproach, which doesn't mean to be without sin. While we should avoid sin and walk in accordance with the scriptures, Christians are primarily above reproach when we are the first to call out the sin in ourselves. The enemy cannot use our sin against us because we have already confessed that sin and laid it at the foot of the cross. But we should not only confess our sin, we should quickly repent of our sin. If we verbally confess our sin, but we refuse to abandon our sin, we allow sin to have a foothold in our lives. If we have been convicted of sin, then we must quickly confess it and repent of it. And by honestly contending with our sin, regularly confessing our sin and promptly repenting of sin, we will be above reproach and remove any opportunity for our enemy, be it the world, the flesh, or the devil, to use our sin against us. So we have much to learn from Paul's example. And there's really a lot more that could be said on that particular point. 
But I think the most important thing we see in this text is not in the example of Paul, but is in the example of Felix and his response to Paul's message. As we've already mentioned, Felix was a moral degenerate. He had spent his life in pursuit of fleshly passions, and he used every mechanism at his disposal to, uh, to indulge his lusts. And as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, we see that Felix fails to repent, though he is rightly alarmed. One of the things that Pastor Tim pointed out to me as we were discussing this text was that the response of Felix is eerily similar to that of the rich young ruler. If you recall, um, when the rich young ruler inquired of Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus responded, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your mother and father. Jesus gives the truth to the rich young ruler. Truth which should have caused him to realize that what was required of him was perfection, a perfection that he did not possess. Yet what was his response? All of these I have kept from my youth. So the rich young ruler didn't get it. Almost in the same way that Felix, who had a rather accurate knowledge of the way, didn't get it. So then what was Jesus' response to the rich young ruler? One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus goes from giving the truth in a general sense and uh, then goes on to apply the truth directly to the heart of the rich young ruler. It's almost as if Jesus says, I know what your problem is. So let me point it out to you. Jesus knew his sins and applied the truth directly to his sins. And when the rich young ruler heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. So both Felix and the rich young ruler became distressed at the application of truth to their lives. Both realized the weightiness of their own sin in light of the truth of the gospel. However, neither repented in their distress. Neither turned towards Christ in faith, recognizing him as the only one able to save them. Instead, both walked away from this gospel encounter wholly unchanged. The only difference is that the rich young ruler did not have the authority to dismiss Jesus, so he went away sad. Whereas Felix simply sent the messenger of truth away since he had the power to do so. In his commentary on this text, Matthew Henry makes this observation. It's a lengthy quote, but I think it's well worth considering. He says this, quote, a prospect of the judgment to come is enough to make the stoutest heart to tremble. Felix trembled, but that was all. Many are startled by the word of God who are not changed by it. Many fear the consequences of sin, yet continue in the love and practice of sin. In the affairs of our souls, delays are dangerous. Felix put off this matter to a more convenient season, but we do not find that a more convenient season ever came. Behold, now is the accepted time. Hear the voice of the Lord today. He was in haste to turn from hearing the truth. Was any business more urgent than for him to reform his conduct or more important than the salvation of his soul? Sinners often start off like a man roused from his sleep by a loud noise, but soon sink again into their usual drowsiness. Be not deceived by occasional appearances of religion in ourselves 
or in others. Above all, let us not trifle with the word of God. Do we expect that as we advance in life, our hearts will grow softer or that the influence of the world will decline? Are we not at this very moment in danger of being lost forever? Now is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late, end quote. We see in the example of Felix, the danger of having our conscience pricked and yet refusing to run to Christ. We see the tragedy of being alarmed by sin, yet not unto repentance and faith. And while we recognize this phenomenon as common to the unbeliever, we need to remember that Christians too sadly respond in the same way that Felix did. When the pastor or a spouse or a friend points out our sin, many of us simply refuse to repent. We know that our sin is a problem. We know that our conscience is being pressed upon by the word of God. And we know that God has given us brothers and sisters in Christ as a means of grace in our sanctification. Yet despite all of this, we sadly find reasons to excuse our sin rather than repent of it. Now it's not in the same dramatic fashion, right? We don't send our spouse back to their prison cell when we're alarmed by the truth, right? But instead we find subtler ways to dismiss the truth. We try to point the finger at them so as to point out their sin and take the spotlight off of ourselves. We go and get a second opinion from the person we know will affirm us rather than challenge us. We avoid those who will give us the truth and instead seek counsel from those who already agree with us. All because in our heart of hearts, what we're really seeking is a pass on our sin. To quote one of my favorite preachers, Vodi Bakum, if you can't say amen, say ouch. As believers, we need to see the problem of hanging on to sin. We need to see the problem with hearing the word and not doing the word. We need to see the issue with recognizing the sin in our lives, being rightly alarmed by it, and yet remaining obstinate in our sin. So in closing, I would like to make an exhortation. Uh, first to the believer and then to the unbeliever. To the believer, my admonition is this. If you are cultivating sin in your life, do not delay your repentance. The cultivation of sin only produces more and greater sin. As John Owen so aptly warned, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There is no better time than the present to confess your sin and to put it to death. Do not look for a way to excuse your sin. Do not look for a way to sear your conscience. When you feel that inner turmoil caused by the application of God's word to the sin in your life, do not respond like Felix. And for the unbeliever, if you like Felix are rightly alarmed by the reality of your sin, if you recognize the holiness of God and are in fear of the judgment to come, do not put off repentance to a more convenient time for you do not know if a more convenient time will ever come. We all will stand and give an account one day before the ultimate judge, the King of Kings, the one true and living God. And that day may come sooner than you think. And if you are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, what a dreadful day that will be. As the author of Hebrews tells us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So if you have felt the weight of your sin this morning, recognize that now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 
Do not harden your hearts in sin and unbelief. Rather, repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Recognize that you need a savior and then flee to Christ. For he is able to save those who by grace put their faith and trust in him and in him alone. The fact of the matter is, regardless of where you find yourself this morning, the message is the same. If the truth of the gospel is convicting you of sin, if your conscience is pricked by the word of God, repent. Recognize that this fear, this angst that you feel is exactly the way you should feel. And then run to the cross. For it is only in the cross of Christ that we can have our sins atoned for and our guilt removed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we recognize our sinfulness in light of your holiness. We recognize that our sin deserves judgment and that one day we will stand in judgment before your throne. And Lord, we are rightly alarmed by this reality. But we thank you that through your gospel, you made a way for us to be saved from the wrath that we rightly deserve. I pray for all of us here this morning. I pray that as we encounter your word, we would be rightly distressed by the presence of sin in our lives. And from that place of distress, I pray that we would, by faith, trust in you for salvation. Would you, by your spirit, continually convict us of sin? And would your kindness lead us to repentance? We pray all of these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.